1: And now, here's your host.
0: Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I wanted to go back to something that I said I was going to talk about in the future, and that was sort of the development of Epcot. And this idea that became the whole Epcot and became the Walt Disney World Resort, it's sort of an interesting story that deserves a little attention. Now, there's pieces to it that are not well understood or uh, people don't really talk about this part of the story, but I wanted to present that as well as the rest of the story and kind of talk about the development of Disney World. So let's go back in history and start with Walt Disney, who had an intriguing idea. He wanted to build what amounted to a research park where the top companies at the time could come together and invent great things. They could tinker, play, and generate products and ideas and test them out in the quasi real world that he was inventing as a part of his Florida project, or Progress Land, or whatever you want to call it at that point. To this point, Walt had had some success with the general notion. He had companies investing in the ideas and concepts, and the companies were testing them at Disneyland. But he wanted to go further. He wanted there to be a partnership between corporate America and his WED designers. WED, of course, standing for Walter Elias Disney, these were the people who imagined great things and who were the earliest version of the Imagineers. Because of the relationships he'd already fostered and he'd been building, major companies at the time were delighted to consider the concept and invited Walt, his web designers, and others close to Walt to visit their research facilities and see what they were doing. Now, certainly there was something to all of this. Though we can't know exactly what he had in mind, things were moving along. He had a plan for his Florida property. The the experimental prototype community was the thing. It was the only thing he focused on, He had previously said there would never be another Disneyland. He'd already built a theme park. He wanted to do something different. Now, reality is that he knew that he would probably have to build a theme park in Florida in order to pay for some of the things he wanted to do. You have to generate revenue somehow. So it's possible that he would have wanted to create a Disney World project anyway, but it was sort of an afterthought, something he was going to do later. Now, it's not to say that he wouldn't build it. It's just that it would come with time. Now, before I go further into the story, I wanted to dive into history for just a couple of minutes. I'm going to talk about a time in history where there was an idea of a company town. Now, a company town is something that originated in Europe during the Industrial Revolution and grew in Britain as the industries grew and things started to progress. The idea was that a company would build a factory and would offer housing for the workers and their families in order to Give an incentive to actually be working for that factory and keep people close to the factory so that they would work perhaps longer hours or be more committed to it. Now, these towns would offer everything from essential services to corporate owned stores to some independent stores to groceries, dining halls, churches, and some leisure activities. So, in effect, the employees of these companies would have a place near the factory to live, have most of the things they need nearby, and after the cost of housing was deducted from their pay, the workers would still have a little bit of spending money. Although the early results were decidedly mixed, as time moved on, the idea for the company town expanded and grew, and as a result, the towns were more generally well-received. And as the Depression was ongoing in the United States, they popped up here too. They made sense and provided opportunities to work and have a place to live and give people some sense of belonging in a way. Now, you may see the glaring flaw in this. In order to live in the town, you had to work for the company. If you lost your job, you had to move. Sure, sometimes you could stay and pay rent or maybe own a shop there or something like that, but that could never last. And you certainly couldn't retire there. And given that the town was for the benefit of the company and its employees, you probably wouldn't want to anyway. And the really the reality was that while it felt like you were part of something and belonged in a way, you had to live by company rules. You were in some ways sort of an indentured servant. Now, not literally of course, But the trappings were familiar because you were there and you were kind of stuck there in that job in that town. Now you had no real rights and couldn't control very much. There were horror stories about poor living and or working conditions of people being taken advantage of and a story about the Pullman Company lowering wages making it impossible to afford the housing that was provided which led to an infamous strike and a lot of upheaval and not coincidentally to the creation of Labor Day by the federal government in order to kind of ease the tensions, and be an olive branch of sorts. Now with that context, let's turn back to our Epcot story. As you may recall from a previous story I told, Walt wanted to create a family type of business. And at one point he created apartments for his animators. The idea was they'd be more effective if he treated them like family and had them living close by. So the kernel of an idea was born. Now, in spite of a few people wanting to unionize and not be aligned with his ideal, there was some merit to the approach. I think you could rightly argue that he was considering a bigger vision. He was thinking about what amounted to a company town. Although you rarely hear about it in that way, Walt's experimental community was just that. It was a company town. He wanted people to live in this community and work on these amazing projects, but he knew that if they were true homeowners, they would have voting rights and he wouldn't be able to control things. Notes found in his desk after he died made clear that he knew people had to be considered temporary residents to make this all work. And this was key. The company town would accomplish the goal, but this wasn't going to be a community where people could live in for a long period of time or retire to. Rather, these would be employees living and working in the community and leaving when their employment was over. And herein lay the very large problem that Walt had to overcome. He had to purchase the land and then somehow get the state to allow him him to implement his grand vision. Federal and state law would need to be overcome in order to create such a thing, at least on this scale. Now, it should come as no surprise that his connections to CEOs, lawyers, and politicians would be very important. He sought advice and guidance from various people about how to accomplish this. And in one of the most underappreciated and not generally known stories, Walt actually got a little devious in his approach to this. He used a law firm in New York to help plan how he would address all of it. The firm was Donovan Leisure, Newton and Irvine, and they were brought in to help get the entire thing started. Not a big deal, right? You would expect that. Well, here's where things turn a little funny. The Donovan in the name partners uh, part of it was William Donovan. And he's sometimes referred to as the father of the CIA. Hmm, an interesting person to engage, I would say, and also working for the law firm and involved was William Casey who was a recently retired director of the CIA. Now, that's quite an intriguing coincidence, isn't it? They would use a law firm like that. Kind of funny. Now, the story goes that they also got the, at the time, current CIA operative, Paul Hallowell, who lived in Miami, involved in the process. Now, who did what exactly remains the subject of some conjecture, but they directed and helped. Walt set up the shell companies used to make the land purchase, They provided some of the cover stories and possibly the fake identifications that Joe Potter, Bob Foster and others used as they traveled to Florida to start work here. They also helped handle the money transfers. And most importantly, they advised Walt on how to set up this company town within the legal bounds. And when it came time to deal with the state, they wrote the actual legislation that was used. But more on that in a minute. Now you may recall I've mentioned Halliwell before. He was actively involved and helped Walt secure the mining rights for the land. Now, as I noted before, he was working for Walt, but he was a CIA operative. It's so bizarre that it runs right up against what seems real, doesn't it? It almost seems like this is fictional, this can't possibly be true. But yet, history tells us that it is. So Emily Bavar, the uh, reporter for the Orlando Sentinel, figured out it was Disney purchasing the land, and the governor at the time was rather perturbed when he heard that. He was upset that Walt was buying land for a project but hadn't, at that point, contacted the office of the governor. Now, here's another one of those intersection of politics and Walt Disney moments. Walt had to come clean and make nice with the governor, and in the press conference that ensued, you know, the one where it's Florida welcomes Walt Disney, it was awkward, and Walt tried to play down his plans. And he met with the governor several times beyond that, before and after it, to kind of play it down even further. Now, one would assume... This was because he didn't want to commit to a Disneyland East. He was focused on Epcot, after all. But he didn't want to say the wrong things. This was about building a relationship with the state. So when you view it in context, I think it's safe to say that he had this in mind and wanted to direct the development to his advantage. In effect, he wanted to extend on the idea he started with the animators, making a place to live and work, be at the epicenter of something really new, and perhaps be remembered as the guy who changed the world. Well, Maybe that wasn't his stated goal, but certainly as a captain of industry who was looked upon for a lot of these interesting and innovative ideas, perhaps this would have been another kudo to him that would have been bestowed on him at that point. But then he unexpectedly died, and the company had to try to figure out what to do. Negotiations had already started with the state about land use rights, and Roy and the other executives decided that they needed to adapt a bit. Creating Disneyland East first could be accomplished as a means to generate revenue, And the idea for Epcot would require a little tweaking. How could anyone else accomplish what Walt wanted? Did anyone actually know what he wanted? And so the company decided to keep up the pretense of what Walt envisioned and what they understood it to be. They used the last images from Walt talking about Epcot and had the presentations from some major industries, corporations that were involved with the Disney World project, and presented them to the governor and the other dignitaries in the state to kind of explain what they wanted to do. The state bought it and was really on board with it. And in a crowning moment for the Disney company, they actually suggested the legislation, the text of it. They actually put it together. Now, this is the text of a legislation that was written by that law firm connected to the CIA. So there's something so odd there. They presented actual legislation to the state that then the state voted on and passed as the legislation that allows for Disney World. It delineated what the state of Florida would allow them to do. And of course the state approved it overwhelmingly. Later, many years later, several legislators suggested that maybe they should have read it a little more thoroughly. But nevertheless, it established a special improvement district that would generally allow Disney to do the things they wanted to do with their land. But the problem is that possibly this legislation violated state law and perhaps federal law in the way that it allows for autonomy, for the company town with no real voting rights, for how they have the private company working like a city and in effect, can run the city as a company. It's messy and complicated and could theoretically be challenged in court, but the Disney company are good citizens, pay their taxes, and often acquiesce to the government when it matters. And they do good things in in the community, so it's a win all the way around. So there's some nuance to how it all worked and comes together. Going back to a previous podcast I had, politics and Disney, indeed. They're so inexorably linked. Now, as for Epcot, The Disney company, after getting the legislation they wanted, decided to essentially scrap the research park, and at least on paper, save it for a future phase of the Disney World project, which goes against everything they said they'd do. The government kind of pushed back and cajoled Disney to reveal their plans because they were granted these special rights simply because of Epcot. Disney shifted gears again and announced something that was much less a research park and much more a theme park with an important caveat that they would work with major companies to develop new technology and would host an international showcase where countries could be united. At its heart, this met the basic goals they set out to accomplish and satisfied the state to a large degree. So you may ask yourself, sure, they were talking about this research park, which became Future World, but why World Showcase? And that's another piece to this puzzle. Walt always was fascinated by the idea of a World's Fair. And of course, Joe Potter had worked at the New York World's Fair in 1964 and 65, the last major World's Fair that happened, and there was this sort of connection that came up that we could extend on that idea. Now, also remember that in Walt's time, we didn't have an interconnected world. Far off lands seemed mysterious. So why not have a form of international cooperation baked into the idea for Epcot? While U.S. companies could certainly drive innovation, there might be opportunities to extend on that in the spirit. And therefore a permanent exhibition of a World's Fair might be a big plus. And of course, the federal government was also pushing for the idea of having this spirit of international cooperation, so this is all kind of coming together to a large degree. Now, the web designers or Imagineers were unsure what to do about Epcot. No one could figure out how to make a company town. And without Walt and his vision and his unique charm, there was no way the company was going to take something like that on. Along the way, they tried some things, and at some point, as the Disney company was planning for the future, they had an idea for the Disney Village, which might allow for some of this to still happen. Albeit on a smaller scale, maybe they could bring together people and ideas via rental housing and conference space. But it still didn't quite measure up and proved to be more complicated in some ways. So the idea got shelved until in the 70s at some point and replaced with the next best idea, a theme park that would build on the concepts. Now, this theme park would allow them to do portions of it, but which parts were they going to do? The Imagineers were split, split into two camps. The first was a group that thought the permanent World's Fair was what was really required here because you could do the innovation piece as a part of the World's Fair. The others were the ones who saw the spirit of innovation, of working with companies for a common good as the answer because that's what Walt had said he wanted to do with Epcot. So they came up with essentially a Tomorrowland that would always stay current. They created a Communicore as the hub to this innovation and showcased new technology with input from many large companies. Heck, Even the kiosks where you could talk to a guest services representative via video and use a touch screen to interact was wildly innovative and really is the predecessor to the modern-day cell phone. So to a large degree, they were on the forefront. That's exactly where they wanted to be. Now, Disney's leadership saw the promise of both, but it wasn't until Marty Sklar pushed the two models together that the more comprehensive idea for Epcot was born. And leadership was sold that that it partly fulfilled Walt's vision for Epcot, and perhaps more importantly, that this concept would allow them to fulfill on the promise they'd made to the state years before. That there would be a community for people to live and work and provide innovation. But I have to come back to an intriguing subplot of sorts. The company established two distinct cities in the Reedy Creek Improvement District. There's Bay Lake and Lake Buena Vista. They were each set up as independent cities, actual cities that have governing bodies. The cities in the Improvement District all were established with voting rights to decide on how things would impact land use and how the land would be used. Reedy Creek is run as a sort of a municipality, with Disney employees mostly running it, though there are some non-employees who work for it to keep it close to being somewhat separate, at least give the illusion of that, put up the pretense. As for the cities, they have actual people living in them. Around a dozen families live in the two small communities in different places around the property, and they have local governments that are elected. But here's the rub. All the residents are employees of the Walt Disney Company, and in effect, these are both small company towns. They come and go based on their own decisions and how the Disney Company chooses to use them in that capacity. In the weirdest sense, this is what Walt had in mind. Plus, let's not forget about two other groups. Disney's college program brings in workers for a semester. They live in corporate housing and leave when their contract is up. Isn't that really a company town? And the other are the international exchange students, who at least until the pandemic, came in the spirit of international cooperation and education and similarly lived in in a company town. And never forget what I noted about this group previously. Disney lobbied the federal government to create special visas for them to allow this to happen. So while it's not what Wald had in mind precisely, in a way, Epcot exists, but only on a small scale. The imagined company town where corporations would send their best and brightest and share ideas, experiment, innovate, and give people what would have amounted to a 20th century new way of working never came to pass. Of course, the nature of Epcot has changed over the years, but Disney is always mindful of balancing this autonomy they were given against their own corporate desires. So it's sort of a delicate balance that has to go on all the time. The state is happy to have the tourism dollars. And as I talked about in the Voltenschaum episode, mostly lets Disney just be Disney. But having long ago created two communities with actual voting members in a company town is at least part of the reason they don't get much negative press. They follow the laws and governing principles and are good citizens in the state for the most part, so it really doesn't become an issue. It benefits everyone to a large degree. And that's the story of Epcot, at least as I see it.
1: One little spark of inspiration is at the heart of all creation, right at the start of everything
0: that's new. One
1: little spark lights up for
0: you. For today's One Little Spark segment, I wanted to spend a couple of minutes and talk about housing inequity and sort of the segregation that's embedded into the story here. And to do this, I wanted to back up into history and talk a little bit about the end of the Civil War. When the slaves were freed, they now had an opportunity in life that they've never had before. They could go out and hold jobs. They could own property. They could own tangible things. They could grow as a community and. Be able to do a lot of things that were afforded to whites before that this was also true of immigrants just to make a broad point here but it was interesting that they now had an opportunity to to do some things that they would never done they could get educations it was remarkable so there was a bit of a renaissance to a point for many of the now freed slaves but there was underlying problems of racism that were out there especially given that the uh, white population, especially in the South, never treated them as equals. To this point, they'd always treated them as inferior in pretty much every way. So it was difficult for them in many cases to own property and own land. There's some interesting stories in history about how they couldn't purchase a lot of land in different places. And uh, it's still true today that it kind of carried down and there's no deed to certain pieces of land that they've owned for generations. But in any event, this was a time of Renaissance to a point you started to see things growing. But then came the Great Depression in the late 1920s and into the 1930s, and this was a new problem. If, I would argue if you weren't wealthy, people were basically left behind. There was no opportunities because of the uh, Depression. And uh, FDR had some great ideas and did some great things as the president. But where he failed was in this ability to create opportunity for everyone in society people of color and immigrants were left behind in his New Deal. The New Deal was intended to stimulate the economy and give people opportunities in life. And so he, one, of the, one of the tenets of it was to actually create some ability to buy housing for people to actually own homes to create that sort of infrastructure piece where you could actually grow as a community and could grow wealth. And he created the uh, Federal Housing Administration which was very specifically designed to help foster this and make it happen. And then there was a group called the Home Loan Corporation that was actually there to provide loans for people so that they could actually afford these homes. So it was a really interesting thing. The only problem with it was that you had the Home Loan Corporation had set up very specifically to say that they didn't want to provide loans to people of color or immigrants. And they actually took maps and drew on the maps areas where people of color lived or immigrants lived and outlined them in a color. So they'd take a map and they draw an outline around the edges of it where black people lived. And specifically around the, the black areas, they would outline them in red. And this became a process that became known as redlining. And the idea was to basically take those areas and say we're not going to provide loans to them because they're high-risk areas there, there's it's too much responsibility for us to, to offer a loan to the to people in the, that are near that community so they would build houses elsewhere which, which is kind of a crazy thing if you think about it. it it the this company this corporation was basically setting a standard for where people could live and saying that black people were not equal in fact the Federal Housing Administration in its underwriting manual actually had the quote, incompatible racial groups should not be permitted to live in the same communities. That meant that loans to African Americans, to black people, could not be insured, which meant that they basically couldn't have a loan. And so two generations, effectively, removed from the end of slavery, where you had this growth, they were now stopped again. And so black people were not offered the opportunities that white people were. Immigrants as well. You know, don't want to just say it was only blacks. It was it was anybody who wasn't white, basically, and so that was kind of the uh, the interesting underpinning of that. And so, when you think about flashing forward to today, a hundred years after that, after the uh, the Great Depression and this and these housing starts and so forth, you realize that black people and immigrants didn't have the opportunity to purchase land, to purchase a house, to create general generational wealth. Someone who purchased a house in that, in that housing start in the 1930s now had a little bit of an income and had a piece of property that then they could sell for a little bit of a profit and buy something else. And then their family could buy something else. And you know they could grow and they could actually create this generational wealth. And that's how basically the black population was held back because they weren't able to do that. And you still see the effects of it today. And they're able to get them, but the problem is now the price points have gone up so significantly, it's harder to get them. And in some places, not everywhere, certainly, there are still some cases where these residual effects of these things are still felt, where these laws and these rules and these sort of overriding racist comments still exist to a point and hold people back from actually being able to purchase land. So it's kind of a crazy thing that still happens today. And the oh, by the way, is when the white people were offered opportunities to purchase these houses— the federal government saw the need for black people to have housing as well, and immigrants, and went back into these very urban communities near downtowns and said, okay, we'll offer you housing here and we'll make it affordable. And what they did then was they tore down any sort of housing that was in those communities. And these communities to that point in the 1930s were, were fairly integrated communities. You had people that were white, that were black, that were immigrants, there were other things that were all living and working together in some community sp- sort of space and they tore down all these houses, ushered the white people to the suburbs, and then created this affordable housing for the rest of the population. And that's what became known as, say, the projects, or whatever other term you wanna use to describe it, but these inner city places. And that's the story of kind of how we got to here and why it's important to consider that there is an undertone of racism, of segregation, in the idea, the very nature of housing and uh, housing inequity. So it's just something to consider when you think about people buying houses and why communities are the way they are today. It's a generational thing that's happened over time. And that's why you see communities sort of like they are, and many communities, not saying all, are not integrated for exactly that reason. And that's why there's school inequities and other things and other social things that come up as a result of that. So it's amazing how these couple of decisions in the 1930s by FDR propagated something that I don't think was intentional, but certainly had a lasting impact. And that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now.